Welcome to the Church of Mavis Radio Show. It's a Friday night, 7.07 p.m. Central. We've got Jay McNicholas with us tonight and uh, Bill and Jackie Kusulis. Yeah, Jeffrey, how's it going? And their book, it's going, man. It's going. Their book is Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley, a Psychological Study of Post-Traumatic Growth. But no, it's a... Uh, it's been going okay. It's just uh, December, uh, COVID and flu, and then that kind of seems like it takes a long time to go away, like <laughs> too long, and then throw in a little weird kidney stone stuff, and then throw in some of the just anxiety, yeah. really, like some angina and some you know blood pressure stuff, which may be from the kidney stone or whatever, but. Uh, I don't know. Kidney stones will almost give you a heart attack. They they're not fun. <laughs> yeah, I got one in me that they say needs to be removed medically. I don't have insurance, so I've been trying different stuff. Like there's Stone Breaker. It actually has decent reviews. Uh, Anytime you start it, you drinking lemonade, if you, if you haven't started yeah, drinking lemonade, like drink lemonade. Yeah, several several glasses a day. But it's doing better now, but they just said it was a big one that needed to be, I guess, broken up by medical uh, equipment or whatever so but other than that i'm still alive <laughs> we're still marching to the apocalypse on the verge of world war three and uh trump gooch civil war and uh putin going psycho so <laughs> welcome to the ragnarok but uh oh last week was crazy a good show bruce hallenbach uh small town monsters the kinderhook uh creature and uh, he's up in New York, and there was some weird blob story where people saw this blob going down the road, and it's a uh, Kinderfield blob or something. And uh, some people, one guy saw the Virgin Mary while everybody else is seeing the blob. So we're just getting into perceptions and how people perceive things and things like that. Like these things might react to what your belief system is. Like I might have saw Bigfoot or Jesus in Bigfoot while some other one saw a 1950s sci-fi blob, you know, with Steve McQueen. <laughs> it's just weird. But no, the weirdest thing about that show at first, he was about to come on air and uh, I could not hear him on his microphone. He had a headset on that looked like it was from 1972 and we could not get that microphone. Whatever we did, it was like he was whispering and I was about to crawl out of my skin and luckily, we got the idea to send him the StreamYard link on his phone. And that worked. We cut out some, but if we saved the show. But, God, it was nerve-wracking. Mercury <laughs> retrograde it, hits again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was the residue, apparently. But it was a good show. But the coolest thing, too, besides the weird paranormal stuff and all that, was he's an expert at Hammer Horror Movie films. You know, Peter Cushing and uh christopher lee and all that stuff so that was awesome we got into that so that's a good one so uh bill and jackie uh what got you guys started on the catalyst for this uh book uh about the the bridge incident and of course the infamous mothman where is the mothman hey jeffrey thanks for having us jay nice to meet you um gosh you know i think we've both been fans and really enthusiasts when it comes to Mothman for a long, long time. And we made our very first trip to Point Pleasant back in 2016 and made a vacation. And, and we had the good fortune to meet a lady 
by the name of Carolyn Harris on our very first trip. And Carolyn was the co-founder of the Mothman Festival, along with Jeff Wamsley, who runs the Mothman Museum. So we just happened to kind of get to know her. We spent every day that we were in Point Pleasant, our, our very first trip, getting to visit with her, getting to know her a little bit more. And Carolyn was a person who uh, really dedicated her life and service to other people within the community. And she really promoted Point Pleasant, especially when the Mothman movie came out and they began doing the festival and having all the gatherings and all that thing, you know, taking off the way that it did. She was really instrumental in that. But she also had the misfortune of losing her son in the Silver Bridge disaster. So we had very much wanted to kind of stay in touch with Carolyn after we left town, but we don't live anywhere close to Point Pleasant. We're in the Chicago area. When we went back home, got back into our routines, you know, another three, four months went by, five months went by. And I told Jackie on Christmas Eve, I wanted to give Carolyn a call because I wanted to see if she'd let us write a story about her. And she said, that's a good idea, but let's wait till after the holidays. Unfortunately, another gentleman that we met with Carolyn, his name is Mark Griffith. He's a Point Pleasant guy also, contacted us on Christmas Day. So the very next day after I told Jackie, I want to call Carolyn. I want to see if we can write a book about her. Mark gets a hold of us, said Carolyn had a heart attack. The next day, Carolyn died. So over the course of the next few years, we kept going back to Point Pleasant on a regular basis. We kept making friends. You know, it was the whole legend of Mothman that brought us to town. But really, Carolyn, Mark, Jeff Wamsley, the people that we met in Point Pleasant, we just continued to get more and more friends and over time decided why not take a look at what happened with the paranormal phenomena and the silver bridge disaster and how those affected the people in point pleasant let's 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 tell their story let's interview some people let's apply some scientific methodology come up with a study and find out what kind of good things came from the mothman making his presence known in point pleasant in 66 and 67 and the bridge collapsing and really changing the whole uh, complexion of Point Pleasant. And uh, you say a psychological study of post-traumatic growth. What do you mean by that? I know there's a lot of different things with the bridge, but and one, one thing it brings up for me is I know I have PTSD from some of the weird stuff I've had happen to me with UFO type stuff, from things over my home to some weird beings that I've seen to uh, seeing something with a friend and the friend saying, yes, I see that. And then years later, the friend doesn't remember it at all. And you're like, am I crazy? And there's just been a lot of incidences of seeing weird things. And there's a part of me that's like, I don't think I was taken or abducted by anything. I don't, if so, I don't remember a damn thing. But seeing that stuff, it messes with you. And it, it, it's PTSD. So, I mean, what, what do you mean by post-traumatic growth with all of this? Well, before we go into that, Jeffrey, if we could, I'd like Jackie maybe to talk about some of her background, too, because she's had similar experiences to what you're talking about. And that could kind of help round out the discussion a little bit, if you're OK with that. Sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I don't even know where I should start with that. I guess my earliest memory of something that was out of the norm for me um, well, it's considered out of the norm, I sh not for me, out of the norm for society, um, was there were six people in our family, mom, dad, a brother, and two sisters, and myself. And my mom and dad's bedroom was at the end of the hallway upstairs. And then my sisters and I shared a bedroom, and my brother's bedroom was right by ours. 
And we woke up in the middle of the night, all four of us kids at the exact same time. And I was tiny. I was probably, I, I would say two or three years old. I remember being really tiny. And when I look back at pictures of myself and the pajamas and the size and the feet that I can remember and, you know, my siblings, that's where I can kind of estimate my age. Um, so we all went to our bedroom doors and we looked down the hall toward mom and dad's bedroom and Jesus was standing at the end of the hall. So that was like something that I carried through my life, especially during the really difficult times because my dad was a raging alcoholic and he was very abusive and uh, he didn't abuse me, but you know, physically, but the mental abuse and the emotional abuse in our family, just from me watching people getting beaten um, and the other horrible things that happened was a lot. So I carried that with me as a message that everything will be okay. I just constantly had to keep reminding myself that that's why Jesus was there to remind me that everything would be okay. Um, and then uh, sometime in my, I, I don't know when it was in childhood, I had some kind of big shadowy thing that was squared off coming up over the hill. I lived in the country and my cousins and my siblings and I were outside playing softball, like we always did on the west side of the house. And we we're looking at this thing coming over the hill and it scared the hell out of us. I mean, it was big and it was tall. And we ran in the house and told our moms about it. And of course their pet answer for everything that we would tell them was um, your eyes are playing tricks on you or go back outside and play or whatever. You know, we did not go back outside and play on that day. Um, I've seen big silver craft, huge, over a farm as an adult. I just, it was just in the air. And it's like still to this day, what was it? At the Mothman Festival, I literally talked to some lady and I think she was from Michigan or Wisconsin or something. It wasn't a state too far from ours. We live in Illinois. And we were literally finishing each other's sentence because she had the exact same type of experience as I did with the silver craft. Um, I see orbs a lot. I can contact dead people not typically the ones i'm trying to but the ones some of people will come to me from giving messages for people um or just to let me know things uh just strange the, the strangest thing was a few years ago i was out on the porch after work and i was looking up to my left and it looked like somebody was blowing bubbles because there was like these bubbles and they look like translucent bubbles like somebody blowing bubbles but they didn't wobble like a bubble and they weren't popping and I couldn't see where they were coming from there were just hundreds of them there and they were like darting in different directions they weren't they weren't behaving like bubbles that get blown at all and uh I was telling Bill about it and then the next day I went back out again and they were there again so I brought him out onto the porch and I was pointing to him and he's like, I can't see him. He was like getting irritated with me because I'm like adamant that they're there. How can you not see these things? You know? And he just, he couldn't see him and he went back and he got bored with it. You know? And it's like, what the hell? You know? So, I mean, I've had very strange things also. Uh, I don't, I don't know if there's any, I mean, I have so many things that, but to me, it's just, it's just life. You know, it's not, it's not like, oh my, oh my God kind of stuff. And this is abnormal kind of stuff. It's like, this is just, this is just what it is. It is what it is. I see things. 
that not everybody gets to see. I know things that not everybody gets to know. It's just part of my makeup. And um, I don't know what it is. The orbs did piss me off because Bill couldn't see him. And I was just sure that finally somebody's going to witness this stuff with me. But uh, my, my sisters, same thing. Remember hearing mom telling us that your eyes are playing tricks on you or, you know, it's your imagination. Um, doors slamming and opening and slamming and opening doors that literally would latch shut would open and close and um, my mom would say it was the wind and it's like how can it be the wind I mean it's winter time the windows are closed there's no wind that's going to unlatch a door and open it and close it and now we move into a brand new house and we've got disembodied voices and some creepy ass bark in the middle of the night that wakes us up so <laughs> they're following you dear I think it's all following you <laughs> So, hey, I wanted to give you a little context there, Jeffrey. That's why I asked Jackie to kind of chime in. But to answer your question about post-traumatic growth, I mean, I think I think post-traumatic stress is something that we're really pretty familiar with in the country. I mean, people hear about that. It's associated with the things you're talking about, the things Jackie's talking about. It's associated with, you know, Vietnam veterans, you know, people that process trauma, but it's still, it's like compartmentalized in areas. It can, it can be activated by the strangest things. So the, the flip side of that uh, would be post-traumatic growth. Not exactly opposites, but <clears throat> post-traumatic growth is an, it's an outgrowth of the positive psychology movement. So psychology uh, as a study has basically been focused on remedying people that have you know pathology. I mean, you look at mental illness, you look at addiction, you look at all these different things that are kind of on what we call the negative side of the human experience psychologically, but positive psychology and post-traumatic growth is all focused upon the good things that go on in life. You know, how can we maybe harness some of those good experiences and build on them? So the whole idea with the study was, let's take a look at a really traumatic thing that happened in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Let's take a look at how the community was changed. The 46 people who lost their lives in the bridge disaster in a small town. I mean, we're talking a small, small region here between Point Pleasant, West Virginia, in Gallipolis, Ohio, you're looking at maybe 12,000 people back in 66. 46 people is a big percentage of a small population like that. How did that change the community? Then you've got this crazy Mothman stuff, you know, and you guys who are familiar with the Mothman, I know you both are, but there's the Mothman, there's the men in black. You know, we talk about what happened back there in the 60s, cattle mutilations, all that different stuff, UFOs, lights in the sky. That was obviously stuff that's outside of the normal human experience. So here we have two crazy things that happened. This bridge disaster, the, the worst recorded bridge disaster in history in the Western, the Western Hemisphere. And then we also have this crazy Mothman thing that's going on as well, too. Let's take a look at how this affected the people of Point Pleasant, because good things come from bad things as well. Does that make sense? Does that kind of answer what you were looking for there, Jeffrey? Yes, definitely. Uh, for sure. And uh, with me, I think uh, one of my big types of beings that I've seen a lot of are beings of light, uh, completely sober with my physical eyes. Uh, I've seen two leave my house like they had been inside my house and came through the roof and go into the heavens. And I've seen them in the heavens. It's almost like there's a quantum realm around the earth and I'm seeing in it. And I guess that's kind of like a maybe a where we go when we croak, like a staging area or something. But for some reason, not all the time, but sometimes I get to see it. And I've seen those beings of light who, you know, could be angels, could be, you know, us without our bodies. There's so many different things. But the one, one reason I'm, uh, you know, invested in the PTSD and uh, 
you know, post-traumatic growth is when 17, I went through testicular cancer and woke up to find out we took one and you have to go through chemo and spread to your stomach and lungs. So I had to go through all that. And it was kind of like a, you know, cadaver weird cells injected in you from ocean life and people cadavers. Like there was like $10,000 shots. It's kind of like the X-Men or something. But, and then after I was healed from all that, my dad died a year or so later and I started to have all these uh, events. So somehow suffering, uh, kind of like Odin losing the eye, but you know, maybe, you know, the eye is probably a little worse than a, a testicle, but debatable, I guess. <laughs> but, but somehow that suffering opens your senses, but there's a gift, a shamanic death. You know, when you have a shamanic death, it opens your senses. So absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, I always find that fascinating how that works. And I also heard that, you know, people who might mess with the occult some can attract these experiences. And I, I read a lot of that kind of stuff. I didn't like practice it really or anything, but I was just into it and reading it and stuff. So you can bring on those kind of things in a lot of different ways. Uh, but I know you mentioned men in black is a, what do you think about the, the injured cold thing? Is that a men in black or something separate? Is that connected to men in black? You know, it's really interesting. And, you know, we have a mutual friend in Andy Colvin, who's written an awful lot about Indrid Cold and some assertions that he's made that uh, perhaps he was a government agent or a spook or what have you, or maybe Indrid Cold was truly this man in black, or maybe he was from a different world. There all kinds of different perspectives on him. But interestingly enough, we mentioned Carolyn Harris a little while ago. And when we were talking to Carolyn at the Mothman Festival, she told us about the men in black. Can you tell Jeffrey a little bit about what she shared with us? She said that there were two types and she referred to some of them as government men. Government men is what she said. And uh, because of her West Virginia um, accent. But the other ones were from somewhere else. Like, I can't remember her exact words, but the impression I got was that they were unworldly. They looked different. They were waxy in appearance and they just didn't look normal. But the other ones she knew were from the government. And in John Keel's The Mothman Prophecies book, Keel writes about experiences the people in the community had with men in black, specifically Mary Heyer, who was the Athens, Ohio messenger reporter who was really on the spot with John Keel doing all the different interviews of the people who were seeing the lights in the skies, people who were seeing Mothman. And, and she actually had these men in black come into her office and try to intimidate her into not writing any more of these stories about UFOs and such. So she experienced some of them. They were short, kind of squat looking, thick glasses. One of them had like a hypnotic type of an effect that he had upon her. She didn't realize that when he was standing in her office, at one point he was several feet away and then she kind of came to and he was right up in her personal space. So some really bizarre occurrences there. Her niece also, Connie Carpenter, is written about in The Mothman Prophecies. And Keel talks about how she had seen Mothman coming home from church on a Sunday one day. And then within a couple of days, there was a car that pulled up. It was a late model vehicle but it was about 10 years old, but it looked like it rolled right off the showroom floor. And somebody grabbed her arm and tried to pull her into the vehicle, said it was a younger man, mid-20s maybe. She broke away, went back into her apartment, locked the door, didn't come out for days. But then she found a note written underneath her door in crayon 
watch out girl i can get you yet so really some weird stuff going on back there in in 66 and 67 with men in black definitely and uh it's almost like there's a you know a lot of this stuff is interdimensional with us and then those might be kind of like guardians and then of course i'm sure our government has people that dress like that or whatever i know when i was having intense ufo sightings after all i went through i had this situation where me and a friend uh saw this almost like a silent helicopter with no blades like in a cockpit over the house really low like it was there for the house and me and a guy in it mockingly waved and he looked like kind of like he had like some kind of apparatus like top gun kind of stuff but i don't know what it was it was just weird but and then it shot up and that was during all my ufo stuff it was like something new those things were going on there and sent something out to investigate they never came to me face to face but i'll never forget that weird thing sitting almost over my roof hovering and a dude in it going and then it shot up <laughs> like that's something you don't forget and I don't know, was there a military? It could have been a freaking alien. I don't know what it was. I couldn't tell, but it's like there's, it's like almost like a Agent Smith or whatever from the Matrix. They send that out after you if you break on through and then, and then they kill you or suppress you or whatever they do, you know. Uh, there's definitely something, there's something guarding that kind of knowledge and not wanting it out and trying to keep us, you know, away from it, I guess. Definitely creepy for sure. You, you got anything, Jay? Let's get, try to balance it out a little bit. Uh, yeah, actually, about when I go back to the Men in Black real quick, um, <clears throat> absolutely, there, there are all kinds of stories about two different styles of them. Just like you said, the summer G-Men type humans from Earth, from one of the three-lettered agencies on, on the planet. could be any one of the countries, but they exist. And then there's the ones that are otherworldly. And I don't know if you guys ever heard of the story about G. Roddenberry, but allegedly he was approached by the otherworldly Men in Black it, while he was getting ready to write for season two of Star Trek, and he was kind of like in a fog, didn't know where to go. And these guys told him about, you know, an outer space federation of planets with so many different types of species and so many different planets they were under control of. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, next year on the Star Trek show, the Enterprise is now under control of a United Federation of Planets instead of a United Space Probe Agency. And um, allegedly, these men are like a representatives of like the Council of Nine, uh, which is an alien yeah. organization. So I don't know if you heard of that, but um, I absolutely understand how how uh, creepy that would be to enter, encounter those kind of men. I haven't yet, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Have you heard of that, that story about Gene Roddenberry and the, the same guys that you encounter, you're talking about? I sure have. I sure have, Jay. And I think if yeah. I remember correctly, those were things that Andy Colvin had written about in some of his books. Uh, either the Mothman's, he has the Mothman Speaks, the Mothman uh, Shrieks, I, things of that nature. I think he talks about them in there, doesn't he? Are you guys familiar with that? It's been a while, but uh, I'm sure he knows the story and stuff. I'm sure that story's been in some Timothy Beckley mystery. I UFO can't remember where I first heard the, the, the rumor, but it was way back in the 70s, um, like late 70s, almost 80s. So it might have been like a In Search of episode, but it, it's it's been going around Hollywood and no one has... Uh -oh. Really, uh -oh. been able to pin it down. There's several rumors like that I'd like to pin down, but Roddenberry and give him ideas for Star Trek, and and here we are now. We're living in we, some of the stuff that was on Star Trek. We have in our hands now. We have communicators. You know, every one of us. <laughs> so, yep. 
we can call anywhere on the planet. So it's you sure can. I don't know how good or bad it is. <laughs> yeah, my my dad has a house in Greece, and he Facebook messaged us last night when we were having dinner. Uh, it's two thirty in the morning over there. He's celebrating his wife's birthday. But I mean, who would have thought that? 20, 30 years ago, you well, 20, yeah, but 30 years ago, that you could do that kind of thing for free, basically, over an application on a phone that you carry in your pocket. Unbelievable. But yeah, I'm, I'm really familiar with the story of the nine and is it Andrija Poharik? I always have a hard time pronouncing that name, but that researcher and the writing that like I was talking about that I know Andy chronicled in one of his books where he talks about uh, the nine and the connection with Roddenberry and Star Trek and all that. Yes, I, I don't know what their connection is with the Mothman, but um, uh, it, it seems like he just pops out of nowhere in 1966. There's no other reportings or history before that. It's just 66 forward? Not exactly, no. I mean, back through history, there are all kinds of different depictions of winged beings, humanoid-type figures. There was, uh, I want to say there was a spring-heeled jack is one thing that's referred to that took place. I think that that was in England back in the 1800s. It was a creature that kind of mimicked some of the things Mothman, quote unquote, brings to the table, you know, with the glowing eyes and ability to be able to move very, very rapidly without a whole lot of sound, things of that nature. There's the Mad Gasser, which was another another entity that was taking place down in central Illinois area back in the 1930s or 1940s. There's also the instance of the Piasaw bird, which is another similar phenomenon, not exactly like Mothman, but like a Thunderbird type creature in the Alton, Illinois area. And Keel even writes in the Mothman prophecies about other sightings that took place right here in our home state of Illinois, the small town of Poplar Grove, another one of Freeport, Illinois, where these giant bird sightings were seen. And, and again, one of the reasons I'm talking about birds and Thunderbirds is that Thunderbird was one of the main hypotheses that John Keel had that Mothman could have fit. That it could have very well been a Thunderbird or a Garuda, which is like the Eastern society equivalent or like a Buddhist equivalent yeah. to the Native American Western tradition. So not sure if I answered your question exactly there, but uh, that's where my, my head went. Just real quick, what was the Mad Gasser? I've heard of that. No, but what was that, a Bigfoot or something else? So I can't remember. I've never heard of it too, yeah. So the Mad Gasser was in Mattoon, Illinois, which is in central, I think it's central eastern Illinois. And it was some type of an, a creature entity that was similar to Mothman to some degree. And it would be, I mean, when, when you talk about the mad gasser, it basically emitted some type of a noxious gas. It would, it would kind of get up in people's business and, and leave some kind of horrible smell and, and get out of Dodge real quick. I was wondering. I thought it had something to do with that. But basically a flying fart bomber. <laughs> yeah, we've got a couple um, of big lab puppies here that we would call mad gassers. <laughs> go on, go the bird theme. Uh, I mean, we, we've had that throughout history. I mean, even uh, the mainstream scholars who are, I, I think most of them are wrong, will say that, like the Anunnaki, the pictures of Anunnaki were just sort of like mythological gods, but not physical beings. So, but with some other cryptos, we do have physical evidence. I mean, I, I've, I've seen Bigfoot up way close and um, I'll wasn't old enough or smart enough because they didn't have enough, um, let's just say, research experience in the cryptos at that point. So I was 10. <laughs> but uh, I was actually able to follow his footprints. My cousins and I, went after we, the, the morning after we saw him, we were able to follow its footprints into the woods where we lost him properly. Um, the creature 
lost us on by going through a creek and we lost his footprints, but still they were big enough in the ground. We could have put plaster in, which would have been really cool, but we, you know, we didn't know. <laughs> uh, so what kind of things do we have physical of Mothman? Because I, I, that's one thing that I'm not familiar with. I mean, I'm familiar with the Mothman stories of the range from now what you tell me all over the place. I didn't thought it was just the, that one Ohio area, but Bigfoot, so much evidence. What, what do we have of Mothman, physical stuff? So with Mothman, we don't really have a lot of physical evidence. There really aren't a lot of pictures. I mean, there's one picture that I'm familiar with that I, yeah. I placed some stock right. in its validity. Other than that, there's just not really a lot that's out there. The only thing that really comes to mind uh, is what happened with Roger Scarberry's 1957 Chevy, the very first Point Pleasant recorded incident of Mothman, that there were scratches that were on the roof of his car from when they encountered yeah. the Mothman back in the TNT area and then took off and hightailed it back to Point Pleasant. Besides that, Jackie, am I missing anything? Anything come to mind for you? As far as physical for Mothman? Yeah. Um, no, I don't think because um, there was never ever like footprints or anything when people would see the Mothman. There was never any uh, feces found, anything like that. And the strange thing is that when we were interviewing Denny Bellamy, he's the uh, director of the Mason County Visitors Bureau. And mm -hmm. he said that on the first day of hunting season, 250,000 people hit the woods in West Virginia. And he thought that if there truly was a physical mothman, it definitely would have been found. It would have been hunted. They come yeah. from, it's a land of hunters, outdoors people. So if there was any way to physically find this thing, they would have found it. They would have shot it and they, you know, or captured it somehow. And that just didn't happen. That that's mainly why I don't believe it was a physical being. I think it's interdimensional. So, um, yeah, no. I mean, we have the one picture that the Mothman photographer took. Andy has that picture. Um, but as far as any other physical things regarding the Mothman or Point Pleasant or the Ohio River Valley, I don't, I have not, not heard of any. Mm -mm. So probably because it's incorporeal, it's not leaving anything behind. Mm -hmm. It's got to be it. Yeah, that's that's my belief too. So yeah, do we I think really, this creature has a has a serious range? Are we talking about all this this these other stories are the same thing, or are we talking multiple multiple different types? Like no, I think there's really multiple good. different bigfoots. You know, there can't be just one bigfoot all over the planet. There's multiple families and, and probably a few species differences between a couple of them, uh, like there are with us and monkeys. Um, so. This creature ranges all over the planet then, doesn't it? Well, I think whatever happened in Point Pleasant was a really special case. You know, we had, I, mean, I like to refer to Point Pleasant and the Mothman phenomenon of 66 and 67 as being similar to the more recent Skinwalker Ranch because they have all kinds of manifestation of paranormal phenomena. It's not just mm -hmm. a black-winged creature with red eyes. It's You've got UFOs. You've got disembodied voices. You've got these prophecies that have come to various people. All these different things took place there in Point Pleasant. 
but yet there are different sightings of similar type beings really from all around the world. And as these reports come in, I mean, do we think it's the same creature that was there in 66 or 67? Is it really a creature? Is it something that's like Keel talked about? Is it the transmogrification of energy? Is it something along his, his theory was that we exist along a continuum that he described as the super spectrum? Like we're at one frequency, like the four of us are on frequency Earth today. Maybe Mothman was on the next frequency up. And sometimes in Point Pleasant, it was a window area back in 66, 67. This energy came through and it manifested in these various types of paranormal phenomena. Can this happen in different areas? I, I think that it does. And I think it has the ability to really uh, present itself like Jeffrey was talking about earlier, according to maybe your belief systems and your own experience. You know, maybe if you're Catholic, you're going to see the Virgin Mary. Maybe if you're not, you're going to see a UFO. Maybe if you're in Point Pleasant in 66, you see Mothman. Yeah, it's, it sounds very much like driving through Pennsylvania. Because uh, there's so many radio stations that are on like very similar frequency. And you'll still be close to your station you want to listen to, but then you'll hear the one bleed in and take over for a few seconds and you'll hear what songs it sounds like we have those areas all over the planet like I, I guess they follow the ley lines of energy on the planet and that's these focal points like you say is where um what they what do they say about um the skinwalker ranch they said it was like the uh oh they said it was like the disneyland of of paranormal because everything happens there and i was like it's, that's not the only place where everything happens <laughs> so, it just happens to be the most new famous popular it, you know it's like you know a new flavor of lollipop came out and everybody wants to you know try it so <laughs> um, yeah so this is your what you're basically saying is this is like a bermuda triangle kind of thing you know we got one in skinwalker ranch we got the point pleasant we got the bermuda triangle we got all these energy points um so this has to be real. There's no fakeness to this at all. I mean, I, I'm fully convinced about the Bermuda Triangle, all those disappearances. There's got to be something to it. It's nowhere else on the planet except for, I think, what's the uh, Devil's Triangle that's over in Asia somewhere. Do anomalies affect ships and technology? So are there effects on technology? The same, like, have you gone through with a compass and it just doesn't work? Well, interestingly enough, one of the people that we interviewed for our book, a lady by the name of Susan Sayer, talked about some energy anomalies. Can you can you talk about that a little bit? Um, she said that people still to this day will be out driving in the TNT area, which is where the Mothman was originally spotted by the Scarberries and the Mallets. Um, yeah. And other people saw it out there as well. But they, they will be driving through the TNT area and their vehicle will just stop. It'll just shut itself off and they can turn it back on and they can take off and they've had it checked out and there's nothing wrong with their vehicle. It just happens. There is some so weird things still going on in the TNT area, not just Mothman type stuff. There's like um, shadow people being seen. There's uh, weird stuff in the sky that you can see. Um, there's just, it's, it's a very weird area anyway. So it sounds very much like the ghost uh the ghost hunter types they have like a full battery device and they get near one of these anomalies and it sucks the energy right out of the battery and they have to go back to the van and get a new one yeah like andy when we went to ohio and spent the day with andy colvin we went to um we, we climbed a ritual mound and while we were up there 
the batteries on everything I had went dead. And then Andy's battery on his ca camera went dead. Just like, okay, well, he's like, well, now we have batteries going dead. And that was it. The video stopped. So, um, yeah. And Jay, you talk a little bit about uh, some of the, I guess what you were saying just got me thinking in terms of something that we did in Point Pleasant and also in Charleston, West Virginia with doing ghost box sessions. And it wasn't something that I'd done a whole lot of in the past, but Jackie and one of our friends who was with us at the time, they were kind of doing some of that here and there. So we decided to do a couple of ghost box sessions. We did one a couple of years ago, right at Tuendiwe, which is the park, right? Where the two rivers come together, right? Where Camp Randolph is in Point Pleasant, really literally what the name of the town came from, the two rivers coming together, the Ohio and the Kanawha River. We had a really interesting ghost box session there. Uh, Jackie had the ghost box. Uh, she, she actually was listening to it and she had uh, her eyes were kind of grayed out with uh, a mask. So we were asking her questions. And as we were asking her questions, all of a sudden there was all kinds of commotion going over the Silver Memorial Bridge. And it must have been a horrible accident because there was all kinds of ambulances and there were fire trucks that were going. And we asked all kinds of questions um, and got really interesting feedback. But even more so than in Point Pleasant, we did another ghost box session in Charleston, which is close to where other sightings happened. The people in our book, Andy Colvin and Harriet Plumbrook, who we interviewed for the interviews there that had different paranormal experiences. We were at Bird Mountain, which is where they lived. And we did a couple of off the charts type ghost box sessions that were just really pretty earth shattering to us. And to Andy, Andy's yeah, I, grandpa came through. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've often felt the hairs on the back of my neck go on, on some of those Ghostbuster shows, especially when they do those the um, EVPs and they ask a question in the air. And then later on at the end of the show, they, they analyze the tapes and recordings. And one of the, the creepiest ones was, I, I think they were in a Civil War area or Civil War battlefield maybe. And they go, uh, what happened to you? Or how did you die? Or something to that effect. And then they replayed it back later on when they analyzed the tape. And it said, he killed me like almost like it was happy you know and i was like i was like wow <laughs> the, the, mm -hmm. those things and i have a, a little bit of a degree in video so i know that that's that those recordings are there that's hard to fake really really hard to fake so I, I would love to go out and do some of that kind of stuff um the gettysburg battlefield is like 30 minutes from me so i could you know find an old style tape recorder and go up there and start asking questions and see what creepy answers i get but that is one of the most amazing pieces of evidence I've ever seen is the electronic voice phenomenon. Have you guys encountered that at all? Well, the one that I was just talking about, um, what was that? When did we do that, dear? Was it like a year and a half ago, two years ago now with Andy and Harriet? The one on the Bird, on Bird Mountain, it was uh, June or July. It was July of 21. Okay, because it was right, right after we did most of the interviews for the book. We took off from Point Pleasant and drove 50 miles up to, to Charleston to where Andy and Harriet grew up. And what we did is the three of us that were in the car did a Zoom session with Andy Colvin and with Harriet Plumbrook. And so they kind of zoned into us. Harriet is psychic. I mean, she is like a medical intuitive. This lady is crazy perceptive off the charts and she's really super cool too. Yeah. But what we did is, you know, we had Jackie with the noise canceling headphones and the blindfold on again. And another person that was with us as well too she was in the back and if we were asking questions harriet would come through she'd ask a question over zoom i'd ask a question to jackie she'd give us you know whatever whatever input she was getting from the ghost box but she literally at one point stopped 
and she ripped everything off of her head and she said, why are you shaking the car? We're like, we're not shaking the car. The car is not shaking at all. And at that point over the Zoom session, Harriet says, they're fighting to come through you right now. So she could perceive over Zoom, like a hundred miles away, that there were all these different spirits that were trying to come through my wife and be able to speak. Wow. I actually, at one point, started having heart palpitations and like I was having chest pains. And Harriet said, somebody died here of a heart attack. So we had that input as well. But the craziest stuff that happened was a sensation that we got on Bird, Mo Bird Mountain. Both times we were there, we had a sensation of being pulled up by like the crown chakra and where the third eye is. We had like an energy that was pulling up at us. It didn't hurt. It was almost kind of a pleasurable type of a sensation, but it was like an electrical feeling where energy was just coming up. And I told Harriet that, and she said, don't let them take you. And <laughs> at that point, I kind of got the chills and stopped and kind of came to. But I mean, there's more to the story than just, just, just this. It was one of the craziest experiences that I think I've ever had in my life. It is crazy because Harriet grew up, she grew up on in that area and she had missing time as a child. So for her to say, don't let them take you was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. And you get these on recording. Do you record these sessions or not? We've got a whole Zoom session recorded. Yeah. So you do. Okay. Part, okay. Part of it's on Andy Colvin's Mothman Photographer episode 21. He did, he put is part it 21 of it. Or 22. 22. I think it's 22. If okay. you check out episode 21 and episode 22, they're both on YouTube, but he's got the entire the entire session on in one of those videos. Uh, he doesn't have the entire thing, but he's got quite a lot of it. The good okay. stuff. Yeah. 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 I, I, I like that kind of research. Uh, early, early on, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Betty and Barney Hill, um, but they were one of the first to bring out the, the alien abduction phenomenon. And uh, they were working with, um, I think it was the University of Boston's um, head of the psychology department, Mr. or Dr. John Mack, who's now deceased. Um, and he took over from someone else who was also the chief psychologist at, at Boston U. But anyway, they, they regressed them. Um, they, they regressed uh, Betty and Barney with uh, hypnosis to get the real story. Has any of this been done with Mothman witnesses to like get better, clearer uh reminiscences of the of the air encounters not that i'm familiar with you know, although I, I i'd be surprised if it hasn't happened I'm, am i missing something no but um harriet and andy both could do that harriet especially but the andy was hypnotized right yeah and he took a hypnosis class i know that mm -hmm. that would be that would be interesting i've got to believe it's been done be but I, I don't i don't know who it was done with or by or anything of that nature. Yeah. And it might be pretty hard to, to track down any of that information too, because it was 66 and 67, you know, those records, who knows where they would be now. Yeah. Just like the police reports. I mean, things just paper on paper. Yeah. A lot of, and, a lot well, of paper. So we're computers. We didn't have handheld computers back then. So. No. no. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah, and that you're, kind of brings me back to, uh, I mean, go ahead, I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, go ahead, yeah. <laughs> no, I was just going to say it kind of brings me back to, you know, in our in our book, when we interviewed the people, you know, about what had happened with the Silver Bridge disaster and Mothman and all that, we had asked them about, you know, mental health and how it affected them and were there counselors available. And the way they were basically told us was that, you know, back then it was a different time. And here in West Virginia, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps, 
you don't admit that something's wrong. Harriet talked about that in her interview because you do that, that's a sign of weakness. And you're not supposed to display weakness, especially for men. You know, yeah. you're, just, you're supposed to be tough, macho, get over it. Don't show a lot Put of emotion. Dirt on it and go. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So there wasn't really a lot of help available outside of the family or maybe the church. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then there, that is a pretty religious community over there. I, I'm in Pennsylvania. I'm not far from West Virginia and I grew up in Maryland. So um, we, we had, you know, Mar I'm sure West Virginia has their jokes about us as we have our jokes about West Virginia, but it is a beautiful country over there. Um, but very rural. So um, do, do you think that also maybe because of this, uh, People are reluctant to talk about it, and that's why we're not getting some of the evidence that, like, is so much as Bigfoot is. Because I mean, Bigfoot's been happening a little bit longer, but more people it seems are more they're they're less embarrassed to talk about a Bigfoot experience than they are about a Mothman. I would imagine maybe is that that part of the problem? You know, I'm not really sure about that, Jay. Because as you're saying, this is sparking a couple different schools of thought that I that I hold on to at the same time. And the first one is that what happened in Point Pleasant back in the 60s was really pretty well documented. There were between 100 and 200 people that came forward in a very small community and basically went on record and said, hey, my name is such and such and this is what I saw. And they had a lot to lose back then. If you stop and think about it, you're in the Bible Belt and your reputation yeah. as a citizen is gonna be on the line if you're gonna go out there 55 years ago in a very conservative neck of the woods to say you saw something that's outside of the norm. You know, we have other sightings yeah. that are reported in different areas these days, and it's like the polar opposite. Like here in the Chicagoland area, we hear a lot about this alleged Mothman thing manifesting here in Chicago. And the age of social media, where we all have an electronic footprint, and people are posting what they had for breakfast and talking about their marital woes or whatever it might be, all of a sudden we've got people that are coming out by the hundreds and talking about sightings they had, and none of them wants to tell you who they are. It just it leaves me feeling kind of suspect. I think that what happened back in the 60s had a lot of real legitimacy to it. And people had a lot to lose by coming out and telling you that they saw this. Yeah. Whereas some of the things that are allegedly happening today that are being publicized to a certain degree where people want to go silent that have electronic footprints that are off off the charts. It just doesn't add up to me. It doesn't make sense. Yeah. It totally, that you may, when you put it that way, it totally makes a lot of sense. Um, I mean, why would anyone want to come out with a story like this of any style? Um, and it's been said of the same thing of, a, of another guy who's pretty famous, Bob Lazar. And when he came out with his story, you know, uh, it basically ruined his life. I mean, he's he's not made any money off of what he said. Um, he stands by what he says. He, none of it has changed. His, his story has remained consistent. And then any and I, I took a couple years of. of you know, college for becoming a policeman. So there are certain things that they know when you're lying. And but the, if you're telling a story, most people, when they're lying, that story changes every time they tell it. New is added in or an, an, an amazing detail that they had forgotten the last three times they told it. Bob Lazar's story hasn't changed one iota since 1989 when he came out, yet it's ruined his life. So... Mm -hmm. I, you know, anyone who's got any kind of story, whether it's Bigfoot, Mothman, Loch Ness Monster, uh, you know, fairies flying through the woods, you, you don't go to the media with these kind of stories expecting to, like, have your life improved. Mm -hmm. You just want to tell the truth. To, and yeah. this is that people's Benny, lives go the opposite direction. They don't get any better. They get worse. Right. 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 Denny, Denny Bellamy talked about that, didn't he? 
You talk yes. about that with Linda Scarberry. Yes. Roger and Linda Scarberry, Steve and Mary Millette, the first Any, four Anybody, women. anybody that came forward and continued to talk about Mothman was destroyed, is what he said. He used the word crushed. He said they were crushed. Yeah. They were yeah. just crushed. Their reputations were destroyed. I mean, Linda Scarberry became a drug addict and an alcoholic, and she just was a mess her entire life. Yeah, and she, she died younger than any of us here is today. I mean, she died... At a young age but she talked also about mothman you know and having sympathetic feelings towards it she she said that she saw mothman hundreds of times throughout her lifetime she, like she was haunted by mothman so she'd see it in one point she saw it over on top of a building across from where she was living and it was cold it looked like it was cold and it was shivering and it had its, its wings wrapped around itself so she had a different you know a different take on mothman as it was but like jackie talked about it really ruined her life Mm -hmm. That's unfortunate. And, you know, one of the things that I find really strange about the whole paranormal subject, not just, you know, cryptozoology and, and aliens and whatnot, is that almost every religious person that I've ever spoken to is really readily, easily able to believe in an invisible God in their Bible that does all these wonderful things. Mm -hmm. it, they don't believe it that there's a ghost that can knock things off of your table and break glass or scare you or sound like a dog that's not there that your cats and dogs also don't hear. Uh, there, there's, you know, there can't be aliens. So I, it, the, the amount of just hatred from the other side of people who don't look into this scientifically, I don't understand it. I don't know if you guys can make any sense of it, but it, you know, there's, there was the old wars back in, uh, the, the, the first thousand years, um, the Crusades, you know, religious wars against re other religions. Now the new religions, religious war is those who believe in the paranormal stuff and those who don't. And the, the hatred from the other side who don't believe is just unbelievable to me. Uh, do, do you guys get a lot of grief from people that are maybe not so open to the subject? Not so much. Um, really... Yeah. What I have found out is people that don't want to talk about it flat out tell you they don't want to talk about it. And I think they come from a place of fear. It's just too damn scary for them to think that there is really a Mothman or a Bigfoot or any other kind of creature, especially one that might be interdimensional or something from another realm, you know, or, or, or an alien or whatever. It just scares them. They want to believe in just this is it right here. People are it. Our planet is it. What we know on our planet is all there is. I mean, it makes them feel comfortable and they don't have to feel afraid. And there's other people that are like, bring it on, government. Tell us the truth. You know, <laughs> yeah, I'm ready. I that's why know. we're here, you know. That's yeah. why we're here. I mean, who wouldn't want to go around the, the planet with the, with their best friend ghost and an alien from another planet and check out, you know, like the pyramids of Giza or something for a weekend? You know, that'd be Absolutely. awesome. <laughs> yeah. My, my sister literally will tell me I can't hear. It. Don't tell me anymore. I can't. She, she just can't do it. It scares her so much to think that she could be sitting in her house and something could just appear. It just scares her. She grew up in the same house I did. She saw the same heads on the dresser when we were little kids at night. And she just can't hear it. You know, wait, so. wait until the government unveils the fact that they have Star Trek transporter technology and we can do that for real in a few years, you know, and just step on a pad and you wind up in Hawaii in about 20 seconds. <laughs> right. 
Well, it, that would be cool. Yeah. And I'm like, why wait? Because this is big money. We all we know that everything the government doesn't doesn't do for us is because they're getting too much money from us to do it the way it's being done now. So whatever. <laughs> yeah. I was, the, the I was an employee of the government, so I, I I'm on to them. I think we all are, but we're just too um, disorganized to to say anything publicly about it. So, and some of us might be scared, but um, that's about all I have for now. I had some great notes, and you guys answered every question, so I'm at a loss for for new ones at the moment. Well, uh, one thing you definitely need to get into is the bridge incident, the Silver Bridge incident. When it comes to that, what can you tell us about it? And also, was it why did it collapse? Was it just like old construction type situation? What was the reason that it collapsed? So Jeffrey, the Silver Bridge was designed and built in 1928. And it was built along the lines of what design structures like that would need to be in 1928. So if we go back, what's that been? 95 years now, there were still horses and buggies going across that bridge. Model T Fords, mm -hmm. foot traffic, bicycles, et cetera, et cetera. And it was a two lane. So it wasn't like today's modern four lane bridges or even bigger than that. And it was also built according to a different type of a structure. It wasn't your typical suspension bridge. It was constructed by what was known as I-bar technology. So we had these big bolts, these eye bolts that kind of meshed together as, as such. It wasn't the big cables and wires we're familiar with on suspension bridges, really more rigid construction and very tightly wound steel and iron. And as these I-bars interlocked and went across and formed this really nice, strong structure for you know, lighter foot traffic and different types of traffic that was going across the bridge at the time, as the years went by, now all of a sudden we have heavier vehicles. We have trucks. 3,000-pound cars, yeah. 18-wheelers. I mean, the, the bridge sustained damage over the years. In fact, the people who we interviewed talked about there being huge potholes in the bottom of the silver bridge denny bellamy talked about how his big sister used to grab a hold of his hand and swing him across the hole in the silver bridge to get him to hop over it so they could get over and do their grocery shopping over in ohio so i mean other people talked about driving over it linda lane talked about being in the car and hearing a big crack the night before the bridge disaster happened and you know, all, all kinds of people the bridge yeah, bouncing shaking. and shaking yeah shaking as well but that's never a good sign when, no. what, what ended up happening the disaster we're talking about was December 15th of 1967. It was cold. It was snowy. It was winter. It was Christmas time and it was Friday night. People were getting off work. They were going home from their jobs. They were getting ready to, to do Christmas shopping and come home with presents and such. And all, the, the bridge was kind of infamous for having what Keel referred to as recalcitrant uh, stoplights. Both the stoplights on either side of the bridge were red. And this was a frequent occurrence. Susan Sayer told us that during her interview. The, the bridge was totally packed with cars. So all the weight was on it. And all of a sudden, I-bar number 13 gave way and the whole bridge collapsed. It turned to one side and half of the vehicles fell off into the river. Then it flipped over to the other side and the rest of them went in. And then, sadly enough, the bridge fell right on top of all those vehicles. Oh. So the end result was 46 unfortunate souls were lost in that disaster. It was a design flaw from the very inception of the bridge when it was first put together. That that thing was there. It was like a millimeter. 
and it just that night took off and it exploded and the whole thing went like a a, a house of dominoes or what have you a house of cards the whole thing just collapsed jeff wamsley owner of the mothman museum talked about he was i think what was he five or six years old at the time playing in his basement and he said that it sounded like a whip somebody just took a whip and and a sonic boom happened and just a horrible, horrible sound. I thought it was thunder. That's right. Thunder in the winter. He said, yeah. why is it thundering in the winter? Yeah, he was confused by the thunder in the winter. Yep. It may, may, maybe somebody else we talked to talked about a, a whip. Maybe it wasn't Jeff. Maybe it was somebody that, else. Yeah, that was um, Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy Wedge. Joe, Jimmy Joe Wedge. Yeah. Yep. J Jimmy Wedge was actually the coach of the basketball team. Uh, his debut coaching for the varsity team and his dad had flown into town from his job in Kansas City to surprise him stopped and picked up his mom and they were driving across the bridge the bridge went down both of them were killed so Jimmy had a really profound story of having lost both of his parents in the bridge disaster and he's he's an old older man now he's like 79 I think when we interviewed him and um it was just really an awesome interview for him to talk about the whole experience, not knowing that his parents were even on the bridge and he left the basketball game to go see what was going on and saw that the bridge had collapsed and actually went back to the school and made sure the game went on because he didn't want the kids to be affected by what was going on outside. He didn't want them to know about it. He wanted to keep everything as is. And uh, his whole experience of, of his life and what happened because of losing both parents. The story is just just unreal to, to read yeah. and listen to. Um, yeah, that's that's tragic. But yeah. if I it's, I can't imagine how bad that would be. But what what have they put anything back in its place? And, and if they did, if I was from that area, I would be like scared to death to go over the new one. I would say probably no. at least half the people we talked to, Jay, talked about having a fear of water or a fear of bridges. Yeah. Susan Sayer talked mm -hmm. about it. Denny Bellamy talked about it. Um, I think Linda Lane also told us about it. You're smiling. What have you got there? Huh? I mean, I was just thinking about like some of them. I was like, you know, what, what they were saying about they don't like crossing bridges, but they have to. So they're like, just do it and get it mm -hmm. over with. <laughs> mm hmm. Mm hmm. I mean, you can't avoid a bridge if you're traveling at all because they're all over the place. But I mean, even small little well, yeah, no, and it, especially if you're here, we used to go to uh, Ocean City a lot, and there's like it's like the sixth or seventh largest bridge on the planet. The Chesapeake Bay Bridge is one of the biggest ones on the planet, longest ones on the planet, and it's it's only it's it's a big one. It's got two lanes in both directions, but you're going. It's probably at its highest. It's probably a good 200 feet above the water below you. So if your car does fall off the bridge, you're not going to make it. And secondly, it's it's spanning like, you know, like a 30 mile span of like not just water, but ocean. <laughs> so um, it's extra scary. Um, but I've always thought about, you know, every time we went down there, I almost always had the passenger seat. And they almost my friends almost always picked the lane closest to the, the water side for me. And uh, I just can't imagine having living in an area where the bridge collapsed and dropped people in the water and then they put up a new one and then I have to drive across it to go back and forth. I'd be scared to death. I'd move somewhere. I'd, I'd move out of town. I'd, I'd, I couldn't do it. I think it would be hard. I, th I think it really would. Jeff Wamsley told us about um, 
the on-ramp to the Silver Bridge on the West Virginia side. They left that, if you can imagine, they left that intact for like 10, 15 years after the bridge went oh. down. So you've got this on-ramp that still approaches the river. And then the way his described is it just kind of cut, cut off. So you've got this constant reminder of what happened there 10, 15 years later. What, what a horrible thing. And he said, I don't know why they left that there. Why would they do that? It had to, be, it had to bring up bad vibes and mm -hmm. things of that nature. But to answer your question, they built the Silver Bridge, the Silver Memorial Bridge, actually was, they started it off as quickly as they possibly could. Lyndon Johnson, who was the president then, said, we're going to have this thing done in two years. And two years to the date, they had it completed and it was opened up again. But I can't imagine what it must have felt like for people who had experienced that or maybe lost a loved one to have to get on that, get in a car and drive across that bridge. It's well, actually- think about, think, think about this. Linda Lake said they rushed it. They opened it up in two years and they had to close it again because it wasn't safe. They had to do more work to it. So imagine having the PTSD from the bridge collapsing and then having to try to cross the new bridge, finding out that it's being closed again because it wasn't safe. Great Just point. Just adding on top of it. Great point. No, thank you. Yeah, I'd have to move. <laughs> I'd have to move. <laughs> And yet it's such a tight-knit community of the people. Everybody knows everybody there. Everybody welcomes people in. I mean, they treated us like we've lived there forever from the first time we showed up. And yeah, I'm sure people left. I'm sure people left for the same reason you're talking about. But so many of them yeah. stayed behind and really stuck with the community. And here we are now. You know, we talk about post-traumatic growth. The community of Point Pleasant is growing. They're flourishing. Yeah. A lot of it's due to the legend of the Mothman. You know, a lot of it is hey, now the Mothman is bringing people to town. They want to check out where this stuff all happened at. And the way Jeff refers to it is that people always come, when they talk about the bridge, they do it very respectfully. They're very solemn about it. A real reverence for what the community of Point Pleasant went through, which is really, I mean, it's a good statement towards the better side of humanity. I mean, it really is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and with the, with the Mothman stuff, bringing in all the tourism, that's got to help the community. I mean, that, there's nothing better than just healing sharing you know I, I mean ptsd is something that i think a lot of people especially those that suffer from it don't want to share what their ptsd what, what gave them gave it to them but one guy that i know um and he's probably dead now unfortunately i haven't heard from him in a long time but he was in vietnam and he was one of the guys that was so small they would give him a, a handgun and a grenade and have him go into tunnels to clear them out make sure it was safe and because of that, he couldn't stay maybe more than like a couple of weeks inside of a physical building, whether it's a house or a hospital or whatever. He just he couldn't. It gave him such a, a panic for being in a closed tight space from being into those tunnels. He couldn't live normally in a house ever again. Okay. So but he didn't want to talk about the experiences that gave him that fear. So he never cured from it. So does, does that does talking about it help get that? how you described your book to get your post-traumatic stress going away? So I, I think, yes, I think it certainly can. I think whenever we have something that we don't share with other people, it has more of a tendency to quote unquote own us and, and rule, yeah. you know, rule our lives and our behaviors and the way we feel and the way we interact with ourselves, our environments and with other people. But I think when you have the opportunity to share those stories in a safe space where you're not being judged, where you're being supported, where you're trying to help. I mean, some really, really wonderful things can happen. And 
going, going back to Linda Lane, one of the participants in our study, um, she was really kind of guarded. I mean, she came forward. She, she saw the ad that was placed in the Point Pleasant Register and other local newspapers for participants in the study. And she called us up and said, hey, I think I'd like to do this. And when she showed up, she was a little guarded. And we were doing video and audio recordings. She didn't want to be videoed. She was just really pretty pretty modest about the whole thing and you know, guarded when we asked her questions. But she gave us good answers. We really enjoyed the interview at the end of it. Uh, I kind of recapped for her what it must have been like, because at the time she was 18 years old and um, as she was approaching the Silver Bridge on Friday night, you know, really literally right after this happened, she's getting off work. She's going home. She's thinking about the weekend. She's going to be hanging out, doing whatever 18 year olds like to do. And all of a sudden she approaches the bridge and the bridge is gone. And at first, the first thing you think is you're shocked and you don't believe your eyes. And mm -hmm. the next thing is you, know, you have to stop your car because if you keep driving, you're going to end up in the water. And then the third thing is, is, oh, my God, all of a sudden you realize something horrific has happened and reality starts to catch up with you almost like in slow motion. And simply by taking what she had shared with me and reframing it for her in a safe space, she said, you know what? Now that you mentioned that, I got to tell you. And can you tell him, honey, what she told us at that point? Go ahead. You finish your story. Sure, I will. I will. So she said, I was at my mom's house. And the next thing I knew, I was coming to, and she said, it's like one of those old movies where somebody faints and then they wake up and they say, where am I? <laughs> and she said, just like that, she was, she was funny about it. But she said the next thing that happened, she blacked out again. And then, then they took her to the hospital, which thankfully was a block or two away. And on the way to the hospital, she flatlined two more times. She was an 18-year-old kid. The shock of seeing the Silver Bridge disaster and I didn't tell you this, but the fact that her brother's wife was on the bridge when it went down and she was killed, all this stuff overwhelmed her to the point that she actually shut down emotionally and physically and flatlined three times, once at home and twice on the way to the hospital. But I'm saying I'm telling you this because she had blocked that out. I mean, it wasn't even part of her consciousness during the interview. She wasn't even yeah. thinking about it. But when she found out, you know, basically that we were listening and cared, she was able to open up and kind of get that stuff out there and tell us really one of the most amazing stories we have for the whole book. And, and does she know exactly how long after the bridge fell in that she got there? Or was this like, like days or weeks do you, later? Do you remember that specifically, dear? I don't off the top of my head. Days that she... How, how long, what, how, how long after the incident did she come up on the bridge when she had these, the, the flatlining incidents? I mean, was it right after the accident? It was a few days, a few okay. days had passed because she had talked, her brother wouldn't leave the riverside. He stayed at the riverside and it wasn't until after he found a piece of jewelry or like a little emblem or something that he knew came from his wife's purse that he was able to know for sure that she was on the bridge and then he was able to go home. So, and he was there with her. So it was a few days. So it was probably that trauma of, the sister-in-law that really did that to her. And they ended up raising, Linda and her parents ended up raising her brother's kids. Brother had to go away to Columbus to get a job and work someplace to support the family. And the kids stayed at home and she kind of raised them as her own. Mm -hmm. Wow. That, that's the kind of thing that you would expect to see in a small, you know, close-knit community like that. So I'm sure that's, that's a huge story is people raising their friends and neighbors and brothers and sisters, children 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They just banded together. The sense of community there is just amazing. You know, and I, it, part of it is probably because it's just a good West Virginia town and people are just solid individuals. And I think a lot of it has to do also with the trauma they experienced and the way that they came together as a community. And then they passed that on to generations since then. Because obviously that was 55 mm-hmm. years ago. You got a couple generations since then, but they got similar values because mom and dad went through that tough stuff. There wasn't one so personal story that wasn't that not one of the not one of the stories <coughs> was like a hindrance to our study. Everybody had something that contributed to the study, to the results of the study that made the mm-hmm. study more valuable um everybody had something at least a couple things that were really profound um we had charlotte charlene westwood and she was 18 17 18 when it went down she talked about a teacher that was literally on the bridge on her way to the hospital from point pleasant to Gallupolis, ohio to hosier hospital to give birth to her baby and she went down the bridge. She talked about how hard it was to go back to school. And she could just see in her face. And Bill even said to her at one point, Charlene, looking at you, it seems like this was just yesterday. And she goes, yes, it really, it really was. It really feels like this just happened. Her dad saw the bridge come down. So when she was recalling the trauma that her dad had when he came through the door from home, he was so upset because he just knew he worked at the Goodyear plant. He just knew that people that he worked with had to have been on the bridge, you know? And so she just like this look of, she was, you could just see the upset in so many, there was so much emotion. Some of the interviews, there was crying. Um, it was very, it was very, I don't know. I don't know what word to use. Um, it was moving. It was really moving. Yeah, emotional, yeah. I would have said, yeah. Yep. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Rick Manley is a guy we haven't talked about yet. And Rick talked to us, as did Denny as well. And I think Jimmy Wedge. They talked about um, the Silver Bridge disaster happened in 1967. But just a couple of years later is when the, what was it, the, the Marshall University plane crash happened. The football team. The entire football team was killed on the way back. And, and Rick was actually a student at Marshall University at that time. And he just, he kind of coupled the trauma of the Silver Bridge with what happened there in in Marshall University as well, too. Two unbelievable tragedies happening pretty much back to back early in life like that. And really how much of a profound effect he had experienced as a result mm-hmm. of going through those tragedies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it sounds to me like you guys you guys must have spent a lot of time down there. Did, did, is this over several, several years of visiting here? Or did you guys, like, once you heard about these stories, you just, like, stayed there for months to do the book? How, how did you do the research and all that for the book to get to know all these people? Well, modern technology is uh, a blessing in and of itself. I you will cheated, say, didn't you? <laughs> well, we kind of we filled in the gaps, Jay. We filled in the gaps with Zoom meetings. But we had 11 yeah. people that we interviewed, <laughs> and we kind of did like what they, what they say in scientific study, and we did what you call snowball sampling. There were a handful of people we really wanted to interview. And so we sent some feelers out, and we got a couple participants that way, Andy Colvin being one. Jeff Wamsley ended up volunteering for the study 
I mean, he said, I'll be in it. I'll be in it. <laughs> and we didn't even ask him because we didn't want to bother him because we know how busy he is. But and he Jeff, volunteered. Jeff's the owner of the Mothman Museum. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Danny Bellamy is another one that we actually kind of pursued. Then we put the ad uh, with the help of Ashley Wamsley, Jeff's daughter. She suggested get a hold of Beth Surgent. She was the newspaper uh, editor-in-chief for the area. And so she interviewed us and then put an ad on the front page of the, the newspapers out there. That's how we got Charlene Westwood. That's how we got Jimmy uh, Linda Lane, Jimmy Joe Wedge. That's how we got them to participate. And then Linda brought, brought a lady by the name of Marva Bailey along to be able to do the interview. And of course we approached Andy and we brought Harriet with because Andy and Harriet are very good friends. So it was a, more of a matter of, we did eight interpersonal interviews where we sat down with people in a hotel in Gallipolis, Ohio, or over at Denny Bellamy's uh, place of business in Point Pleasant. And then we did three Zoom meetings, one with Jeff Wamsley, one with Andy Colvin, one with, with Harriet Plumbrook. The reason that I wanted to find out how much time you spent down there, because it sounds like a really cool place to go, and and the, like, oh, uh oh, he's frozen. He, he's just contemplating. <laughs> <laughs> he's frozen. He's abducted. He's right, though. It is a really cool place to go. It is. We go there every year. So. Yeah, we're we're there every year, but the interviews really were done from July of 2021 through January of 2022. So most of them were done in July. I think one of them was done in October or November. And then one more was done in January. September, we went we went for the Mothman Festival that didn't happen of 2020 mm -hmm. or 2021. It was 2021. 20, 21. I think yeah. the, mag, the mad gasser got in. Yeah. I guess, I guess he did. <laughs> I guess he did. So what can you tell us about Mothman and the bridge? The, 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 is, is the specter hanging around before or after? What, what do we know about that? Like the Mothman itself showing up, didn't it show up around the bridge? And they thought it was kind of like a, a an omen, like a, you know, a warning or, you know, like death, the Grim Reaper. Or, I mean, there's so many different ways people look at it who can keep up with it all, but. There are a couple different schools of thought there, Jeffrey. And one of them is that there's some kind of a causation like maybe Mothman had something to do with the bridge going down. There's another school of thought that it was a prophecy that Mothman being around was a harbinger, kind of giving warning that something bad was going to happen. I'm more inclined to believe the second one, not the first one. I don't think Mothman had any cause on the effect of what happened with the bridge disaster. If anything, I think some of these paranormal entities, including Mothman, were kind of making themselves known back in the 60s because something was wrong that was going on in the community. And maybe it was the bridge itself that was going to collapse. Uh, again, don't think it caused it. There are people who talk about having seen Mothman on the bridge like the night before it collapsed. And there are other people that say that, no, it had absolutely nothing to do with it and it wasn't there at all. Yeah, definitely. And uh, there's some interesting things I've seen with Native American and then like Indian, you know, uh, Krishna and all that with these creatures like uh, the Thunderbird and the Horned Serpent. And then there's other cultures that have similar creatures. And I know Andy talks about Garuda and stuff like that. That gets fascinating when you start kind of seeing those same creatures. And then with the native stuff, it's like the Thunderbird is kind of like hunting these horned serpents that come from underground and stuff. That gets kind of interesting if you kind of tie Mothman into it somehow. Like I know Andy does with the Garuda and things like that. But I know I've seen some weird similarities between like uh, 
different, you know, cultures with stuff. And every belief system are from Norse to uh, native to, you know, they share similar weird creatures. So that's always fascinating for sure when you see it like that different perspectives you know that some of these creatures are you know exist in other people's uh belief systems like Definitely. giants like giants which is in christianity giants is in norse you know so it's just fascinating for sure there is something interesting um and i, I don't know how much anyone listening or you jeffrey know about chief cornstalk um from the Point Pleasant area. But, I've heard that name, but definitely tell us more. I, I love native stuff. Well, Bill, tell them about the chief cornstalk stuff, and then I'll tell them what I was going to say about Oops. Sounds like somebody's got something to say about that. Yeah. I'm going to mute myself for a second. It's okay. Yeah. it's. Not, I have like 14 dogs here, so I understand. And a pig. <laughs> so. He does a really good job talking about Chief Cornstalk, but Chief Cornstalk was uh, basically slaughtered um, at point blank range. Him and his son and two of his son's buddies um, by, I can't remember who, but it was um, the beginning of the Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary soldiers were on the land on Point Pleasant and Cornstalk was there and it was something to do with a peace treaty he was supposed to be showing up for a peace treaty and um they killed him instead but bill bill does a real good job talking about that and the tnt area is where the cornstalk hunting grounds were that's where they that shawnee he was the chief of the shawnee tribe and that's where they did all their hunting and stuff back then they didn't they didn't live in west virginia they lived across the river but they did stay on that ground. But what I was going to talk about was, so Fort Randolph was literally like right there at the point of Point Pleasant at the um, confluence of the two rivers, the Canal River and the Ohio River. And when you go to Point Pleasant, anyone that's interested in Mothman and the bridge really need to go to Twindy Way Park because that's right there at the point. And what is at that point is the remains of Chief Cornstalk. I think it's five of his bones because he was moved several times before they found his final resting place. But real close to where Chief Cornstalk's remains are, there is a stone. It's a water panther um, on the stone. And it was found in... Um, down the river where the golden boy was. I can't remember what's Leroy, I think is what it is, maybe. Um, West Virginia. Well, the reason I'm telling you this is because if you research the Thunderbird, which Native Americans were you were known for Thunderbirds um, reacting and interacting with Thunderbirds and and the water panther are nemesis, they're, they're enemies. So there is a myth that they have this ongoing battle and the thunderbird rules the air and the water panther rules the underworld, the underground area. And it also rules copper. 
So if you have a Thunderbird that's ruling the air in Point Pleasant, and a lot of really weird things have happened in Point Pleasant. They've had a lot of tragedies. They've to um, even like build to Randy Way in the monuments and things there. There was like lightning that struck on a sunny day and busted the capstone of the obelisk that was put in place for the Revolutionary War um, men that were sacrificed, that, that passed away in the war. Um, but um, so, you, so you have the Thunderbird, you have the Water Panther, you have it right there at the point. The bridge was very close to the point. And if you have the Thunderbird ruling the air and the Water Panther ruling the underworld and copper, there was the idea that possibly this was just another battle between the Thunderbird and the Water Panther. And this time the Water Panther beat the Thunderbird because the bridge went down, taking all of the cars down into the water to the underworld with the copper in the cars. So does that make any sense at all how I explain that? <laughs> I haven't talked about it for a while. So it's like trying to get my thoughts together, I guess. Definitely. Jay, are you here? Because it's not showing you on the no, screen. I'm, I'm here. Yeah. It does, it, it, if your camera's off, it doesn't put a, a, a marker up there. But I, I am here. Okay. Um, so no worries. <laughs> we thought the mad gasser got you. <laughs> no. I, I, my, my computer just went all... Kaflui. <laughs> the way you froze on the screen like you were you were smelling it in. Yeah. <laughs> it, always, it always gets me in some weird pose, and then I come back and I'm like, why were you snipping the camera? I, I wasn't. <laughs> our, our good friend Graham, uh, Morbus Matt, Graham Ganson, he does all our Mavis art. He said Jeff Wamsley put his Mothman art in his museum and used it as an example in a graphic art class he was teacher in. So that's pretty cool. That's neat. He does, he does some pretty good stuff. Definitely. We just interviewed him. It was a good one. Saw yeah. his crystals and weird toys and uh, like movie stuff. But uh, So let's see here. Uh, trying to look through some of the names here that we. Uh, is there anybody in the book you'd like to talk about that we haven't maybe talked about yet? I know I see a lot of different names. I'm looking through the contents and everything. Is there anything you'd like to share that comes up that you, you want to talk about? I think, you know, Jimmy Wedge to me was really kind of the centerpiece of the book because his loss was so profound. Losing both mom and dad was just a really traumatic thing. And he turned his life really into a testament of what his parents were able to instill in him at a very young age. They gave him a strong work ethic, a good sense of family. He and his siblings were pretty much grown. He was the youngest, but he was 25 at the time. But I mean, he really talked about how they were a close family, but a very independent family. And he was just a tremendous interview and quite a character. I'd say that his interview was probably one of the most fun that we did. And really, I, I, when I, he first called me and told me he lost both his mom and dad, I was kind of in a place of, wow, I'm going to have to be really careful with this gentleman. What a profound loss. And yes, it was a profound loss, but he's accomplished so much in his life. He's got grown kids. He's got grandkids. I mean, he's, he's a happy guy, and he had some fun stories. So I, Jimmy was a really good interview, um, really tremendous. Rick Hanley, is, uh, he is the roads commissioner in 
Mason County, right there in Point Pleasant. He gave us a very excellent interview as well, too. Denny Bellamy is a character and a half. I think he's the longest interview out of all of them. But boy, what fun we, we had with him. We sat down with Denny before the formal interview began. He started telling stories. He went on for an hour before we even started our formal questioning. And then after the questioning, he invited us back to his house. We sat out at his house visiting with him and his wife came home and we sat with them till 11 o'clock at night. And to me, that's just a testimony of the hospitality of Western Virginia people. I mean, we'd never met Denny before we inter inter before we asked him to be a part of this uh, the project. And he treated us like we were best friends. So who comes to mind for you, honey, that I haven't mentioned? Mark, you haven't spoke about Mark. Mark Griffith, yeah. Did you, do you want me to talk about Mark a little sure. bit? So we mentioned Mark briefly when we first got started. When we first pulled into Point Pleasant uh, in that July in July of 2016, we arrived in town a little bit after five o'clock. Point Pleasant's a really small town. Everything was shut down. The museum was already closed. But Jackie noticed that there was this little lady inside this restaurant that she said wanted to talk to us. So after a couple of attempts to convince me to do this, we went into the restaurant and we started talking to her. That was Carolyn Harris. But Mark Griffith was right, right there with Carolyn. And Mark is a gentleman that he's become almost like family to us. In fact, Jackie would tell you that he reminds her very much of her brother who's since, since passed on a few years now. But Mark is just, he's a good old Southern gentleman and he's just fun to talk to. And whenever you ask him how he's doing, he says, I'm fine as frog hair. I mean, he's just your typical West Virginia fella. And he keeps up with me. I hear from him at least once every couple of weeks. He's been calling and we've been visiting now for the last six, seven years and <clears throat> interviewing him. We wanted to kick off the book with an interview of him because obviously we couldn't interview Carolyn because she'd passed on. He was the closest thing that we had. Carolyn Harris, and he's just a really good friend of ours. But Susan Sayer works for Jeff Wamsley in his in his uh, businesses. She's a retired school teacher. She did a tremendous job for us. Linda Lane and Marva Bailey, both are from the Gallup Police side of the river, but they both had tremendous stories. We really enjoyed meeting with them. We keep up with Linda on a pretty regular basis. In fact, when we were at the Mothman Festival back in September, Andy, Jackie, Linda, Marva, and I all sat on the side of the uh, Ohio River on the Gallup Police side and just sat and visited. It was it was a lot of fun. We had a, a wonderful time there. And little Charlene Westwood was such a sweet little interviewee. When we first met her, it was our last day in town before we headed back home back in uh, in September of 2021. And she's just a little lady, a little older lady. She lived in a high rise right there by the river. And when we got to her, her residence, she just started walking. And we're like, where's Charlene going? Because usually we sit down with people and interview them, have conversation with them. She started walking down towards the river. She was going to show us the whole town. And here's this little lady in her 70s, and she's not in the greatest of health. She'd been in the hospital recently. And she was taking us on a tour of Point Pleasant. And then she said, well, y'all have been here before, haven't you? And we said, well, yeah, we have. She said, well, why didn't you stop me then? You didn't have to go for a big walk with me. And we just basically <laughs> told her, you were walking, we were following, we just did what you wanted to do. And she was just the sweetest little interviewee too. Who, who am I missing, honey? I, I don't know. I mean, you're not going in any order, so. I'm just, how, about, yeah, I'm just... how about this? How, how about this? This town sounds like a really cool place to hang out. So how about people that you didn't get into the book that you talked to? There's gotta be some characters, you know, who's bar, like if I go there, cause it's not far from me. If I go there, whose bar stool do I wanna sit next to when I go visit? When you go hang out, go, go to the Mothman Museum. You gotta go to the Mothman Museum. You got to meet Jeff, but you got to meet Jeremy. Yeah. Jeremy's he's a young man. I don't know, young man. He's probably about my age, maybe a little younger. 
probably in his mid to late 40s, I'm guessing. But he's just a character. He's just a fun, loving, easygoing kind of guy. He sits right behind the counter there, and he he's just <clears throat> fun to chit-chat with. <coughs> Excuse me. Of course, Steve Ward. I don't know if you guys know who Steve is. He's a transplant from Michigan. He's been a John Keel fan for really his entire life. He's in his 70s now, and he up and moved to Point Pleasant just to be right there at Ground Zero where Mothman took place. He's a real hoot. He's fun to talk to. He works at the museum now. He works at the museum now. Who and else he do you would, know? He would, if he could, he would probably take you to the TNT area and walk you around Point Pleasant, show you the memorial, show you where Mary Heyer's office was. I mean, there's a lot of really neat things. Mm -hmm. he, he probably would do the tour. And of course, he'd show you the buns of Mothman, the buns of steel. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it sounds like a really cool place steel, to go, even with all of the tragedy that happened there, that this is just like a ideal place in America to live. Well, you know, it really is. And if I could, I'd like to share with you guys some of the findings that we came up with for post-traumatic yeah. growth. If I could do that, and, and basically, you know, I'll, I'll spare all the, the nuts and bolts of how we did this, but we did use scientific methodology, took statements that everybody took, took things that people made from all their statements in their interviews, and then analyzed that according to a filtering process, which is known as grounded theory methodology. But instead of putting you and everybody else to sleep, I'll just tell you what we came up with in terms of the dimensions of post-traumatic growth. The first one is a, a greater appreciation for life. Mm-hmm sense of community, entrepreneurialism, family and family values, gratitude, memorial, optimism, patience, perseverance, personal development, perspective taking, positive reflections, preparedness, responsibility, and spiritual development. Lots of good things came out of that terrible, terrible tragedy. I, I would just like to add when you are saying who the, you the, should the, see, the, who you should. Hey, it sounds like it has it. Go ahead, Jackie. But who, who, another person that would really be, um, in my opinion, a person to, to talk to in Point Pleasant would be Susan Sayer. And she works at Jeff's business that what is it called the trading post i think she works for ashley's store is counterpoint that's where ashley wamsley is the susan is with the point pleasant trading company yeah trading company trading um, she's in there an awful lot but the reason i say susan is because she was she was interviewed she was part of the book um she was a little girl when it when the bridge went down she had she had a very emotional interview but she talks she'll talk about her dad and her dad, his name was Pickle Spear. He got the name from when he was a little boy in kindergarten. The teacher told him, you're just as tiny as a pickle. And the name stuck because his last name was Spear. So he was called Pickle Spear. Um, but she talks about him. She talks about the TNT area. Her dad worked for the reserves, right? I'm pretty sure it was the reserve. So he was like Red Cross or whatever. He, I think it was the reserve, the Army Reserve. And he was called out on duty all the time whenever there was strange things going on or or tragedies or a, an emergency or whatever. And he was gone an awful lot just taking care of that stuff. She, she talks about, you know, the different things that are in the TNT area 
things that her dad saw in the TNT area. And she said she's pretty darn sure that her dad did see Mothman, but her mother would have said, don't you dare say a word to anybody. They'll think we're yeah. crazy. <laughs> but she's, she's really she got a lot. No. Huh? I said, well, I was just emulating what the wife would have said. Keep that to yourself. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. She's got a lot of stories, and she's just really a lot of fun to talk with. Yeah, and if you're going to talk to Susan Sayer, you've got to talk to her daughter, Brittany, too. Because Brittany, she's a hoot. She's a lot of fun. In fact, she got her mom to participate in our study. We knew Brittany. We didn't know her mom. And that's how we met Susan. Have you guys gotten any recognition from like the mayor? Did you guys get like the key to the city for the for the book and the recognition on doing this, these stories? Not yet, not yet. The book it sounds like you guys are just months. as much characters of this town as anyone else who lives there now. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You know, you, you say that, but we go into town and immediately within the first 15, 20 minutes we're there, we recognize somebody. Somebody recognizes us. Mm -hmm. It's almost like we live there. I mean, it really feels that way, even though we're five hundred and five miles away from there. Whenever we show up, it's like a homecoming. I mean, it really feels like a homecoming. And that's the neat thing. I don't think that's really a testimony about Jackie and me. I think that's Point Pleasant. Mm -hmm. I just yeah. think that once you become part of their community and part of their family, you're golden. And they yeah. treat you like that. And we're just so fortunate to have, you know, friends there that we can go hang out with. And it's like a big family reunion. Yeah. And, and all the things you described as the, the scientific, you know, results you got, all those descriptors, uh, it sounds like that. Point Pleasant has 100% of all of that. On, you know, we really do. And it's yeah. a it's small. A, really how, how big is the area? It's, it's got what? A couple of square miles? It's, it's real small. And most of it's really kind of stretched out along the banks of the Ohio River. So it's yeah. a long, skinny town. It's not real okay. deep, yeah. so to speak. But what is it? Maybe four, four or 5,000 people? I think it's like 5,000. Wow. Yeah. That's tiny. Yeah, it's a small town. I grew up in a small town, though. So I really, I like it. I really like it. And I'm, not, I'm not big on big cities either. So, um, you know, Savannah, Georgia, Rockville, Maryland. I don't know if you're familiar with any of those cities. That's that's about the breadth and scope of my wanting to be in a city. <laughs> nothing bigger than that. <laughs> you know, and there's something else about that town. This is pretty unique. The Low Hotel. It's a huge hotel and it is old. I mean, really old. And it overlooks the Ohio River. The bank. It's on the bank of the Ohio and it's a haunted hotel so oh nice that's yeah that's something there's a captain jeff the cap captain jim that's seen in some of the rooms there's a tricycle that can be heard we, jeff was taking us through the hotel he wanted us to buy it and uh he was taking us through on the third floor and he said Did you hear that and you could hear like a squeaking noise he goes there's a tricycle that's heard going down the hallways here so i was like i didn't know it was a tricycle but it was a squeaky noise, so it wouldn't surprise me. Very old hotel. It's pretty cool. It's not updated. If you want something updated, don't stay there. But you can have experiences there, so <laughs> it's something fun to do. It's beautiful when you walk into it. It's just the um, the main lobby is just gorgeous. The stairways are gorgeous, so um, there's a lot of really pretty things about the hotel. Yeah, the, the coolest towns have landmarks like that that have a haunted nature aspect to them. Uh, I went to school in Savannah, Georgia, and there are several places down there. Uh, there's, there's the Pirate's House uh, restaurant, which allegedly is extremely haunted and has actually scared patrons out of the building. So I guess if you get scared enough, you get a free meal. But uh, uh, the, you don't find a lot of cities like 
like that that have that kind of character. I mean, I'm talking in a, on one hand, the cities I've had that that kind of experience were Connecticut, Savannah, Georgia, uh, Potomac, Maryland, where I grew up, because it was like literally before it grew up, it was a literally one stoplight town. There was one crossroads, one stoplight, and it was used to have one of those ones that was a four sided. You don't see those anymore. They had the lights on all four sides. Um, and the, these little tiny, cool little hamlets are disappearing by the wayside all over due to our, our technology and our growth. And I mean, one day I think Baltimore and Washington D.C. are going to be one giant city because they're just they're just spreading across the state of Maryland like a virus. <laughs> You know, when you say that, that's so true. There's, I mean, small towns just are becoming non-existent. You don't even shop in small towns anymore. But Point Pleasant is coming back. I mean, the Susan said in her interview, slowly you saw the shops closing, the stores closing, and it was really sad that everything was just going away. And Mm -hmm. she said maybe that would have happened with the malls and stuff like that anyway. But now, because of the Mothman, Point Pleasant is growing. People are coming Mm -hmm. there. I mean, 30,000 people at the Mothman Festival this last year. So, and and they're busy all year round. People are coming to Point Pleasant. So, that's pretty neat. And the, the Mothman Festival, is it every year the same weekend? Yeah, the third weekend. And yeah. of which of which uh, Jill, um, September. Oh, okay. Se- oh. September. And it's and it's really a nice clean festival. It's not like dark. Um I, I one thing I told Jeff is I was just so impressed with how clean the town was. I mean, the downtown area never one time did I go to the bathroom and have a nasty toilet or no toilet paper or paper towels all over in the restroom. You know how it gets mm-hmm. when there's a lot going on in town? Not one time. You didn't walk down any street or walk past any vendor for food or anything where you saw garbage overpiling or somebody dropped a cup and it was left there. Around the Mothman statue, yeah, people put down their drinks to get their picture taken with the statue, but they were on it and they were all volunteers. All the people from Point Pleasant that volunteered kept that town clean and it was really impressive it's just it's it's a neat town it's just really super neat and i'll tell you something else that we found out at the mothman festival jimmy joe wedge's niece i think or cousin stopped and talked to us for a while and she lives right the, the cemetery is in her backyard and she sees ghosts all the time all mm-hmm. the time and her uh boyfriend that lives with her said he doesn't ever see anything he said except for one time i'm looking out the window and i see a procession of still school kids marching past in the backyard so that was that was pretty cool <laughs> so we well, got to speak- talk to her and we got to go visit her next time we go back speaking of ghosts you know we mentioned that we were on the banks of the ohio river with uh marva and with linda jackie and andy we didn't know andy was coming to the festival he hadn't been to the festival for many years he surprised us. He said, hey, I'm going to show up and help you guys out. So he kind of came and showed up and helped us out. But he didn't make travel plans ahead of time. So he had to go camp out. He wasn't able to get a motel room. And he camped out in the TNT area. And he was up like 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning. And he saw a ghost in the TNT area and told us all about that, too. Yeah. This is starting to sound, I mean, because Skinwalker Ranch is, what, 3,000 miles from here? 
Uh, this is sounding like the place to go and hang out. <laughs> yep. This is Skinwalker Ranch of the East. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. They actually call it the Roswell of the East. It's become such a big paranormal mecca that it's like it rivals Roswell now in terms of turnout and popularity and all those types of things. Yeah, I mean, Roswell is old news anyway. When did that happen? 1947? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when the Mothman sightings and stuff were happening, how did the police and stuff react? Because I know Small Town Monsters, the guy that wrote the book last week, Bruce Hallenbach, is from Small Town Monsters, and, you know, they do those DVDs, and mm -hmm. they put out a book. But it's a, what's interesting about all that is these towns, how the police and the people react when these things happen. And then, of course, over time, it evolves to a parade and a, a buy one, get one Bigfoot burger or tire special. But it's just weird how these towns have these things. And Mothman, I believe, genuine stuff's happening. But you don't know for every town. You know, every town has a there's all kinds of different ones. Uh, was it Chestnut Ridge? That's a weird one with UFOs and Bigfoot and mm -hmm. craziness. And they have like memorials and, you know, the, the plaques like you'd see at a national park for it and stuff. But what happened with the police and stuff? I mean, was there a lot of activity from that and people freaking out? Well, two things, two things, Jeffrey. Now, when when uh, the Scarberries and Millettes raced from the TNT area with Mothman hot on their trail, they ended up at the uh, police station and they all gave police reports. We were talking earlier a little bit about Bob Lazar and how he's never wavered in his story. They took these four kids. They were two married couples, but they were young, 18, 19 years old. And they put them into separate quarters. And they basically interviewed them trying to see if people were making stuff up. And not one of them varied from the story. The stories were very, very similar. Uh, they never they never wavered one iota from what they stated originally. And their police reports and copies of them are in the Mothman Museum now. So you can see them. And I think Jackie had identified, was it 13 pages of yeah. script? Which yeah, is that number 13 pops up all the time when it comes to the 13th I-bar, mile marker number 13 on the highways around the area are the ones that are advertised as you're approaching Point Pleasant, 13 miles to, to Point Pleasant. I mean, this number keeps popping up. But to answer the question, um, really, the police believed these kids because they weren't the kind of kids, they weren't the kind of people, not even just these four people, but the other ones who came forward weren't the kind of people to make things up like this. And again, getting back to what we talked about a while back, they didn't stand to really gain anything. Getting notoriety in the 1960s for seeing crazy stuff like this, that was not the deal. This is the Bible Belt. You don't do this kind of thing. They were very believable because they did have things to lose. So coming out to make these statements and to be bold about it and say, look, this is what happened. They they had no choice but to say, hey, there's something going on. We don't know what it is, but it's going on. Now, if we fast forward 50 years into the future, and now we're looking at what happens in town there, Denny Bellamy talks about how on Mothman weekend, the police, the fire folks, everybody lines up. And they basically do the best job they can to keep things orderly, to keep things clean, to keep things tidy, like Jackie was talking about, because they know how important Mothman Weekend is to the community of Point Pleasant. Denny said that when he finally went to he went to like City Hall and said, Look, you gotta you gotta stop and think about this. On Mothman Saturday, two million dollars walks down Main Street. They literally spend that kind of money. That's what that means to the town of Point Pleasant. So here we have this town that was devastated in the 60s by the bridge disaster, rescued by the legend of Mothman, and now it's a commercial enterprise. And like Jackie said, it's family friendly. I mean, you don't have to worry about bringing your kids there and seeing bad things happen because they don't. Yeah, it's not like Mardi Gras where it's that's an adult event. It's not like St. Patrick's Day in Savannah, which is fun, 
but an adult event. I mean, it's, we, you got people that are walking down the street with open containers of alcohol and, you know, there are, you know, open bar fights in the middle of the street. It's not a, it's not a kid friendly venue, but this one sounds, you know, it's like a Star Trek convention. You know, you're not going to exceed a bunch of, you know, drunk idiots beating each other up in the streets. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. We had a really neat experience. Jackie has a couple of online shops and she, she deals in, in uh, crafting items and fairy gardens and crystals and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. So we shipped our books to the Mothman Museum and our booth was right outside of there. Um, some of Jeff's folks that work for him, they wheeled boxes of our books out and we stacked them up to sell them. Jackie also stacked up a bunch of her fairies and things like that. And rather than selling the fairies, she just got the idea. She said, you know what? When little kids go by, I'm going to give them a fairy. If a little girl comes by, I'm going to give her a fairy. Or a little, a little boy. Or a little boy. Some of the boys, yeah, some of the boys like them too. Some yeah. of them I want one. <laughs> I ain't doing that. You know, some of them didn't want nothing to do with that. But we, we, met, we met a really neat couple. They were pushing a stroller with two little kids in it. And Jackie stopped them to get their attention and said, hey, would you like your little girls to have a couple of figures? And, you know, we didn't know who these people were. We had no idea. They were very gracious. They were very thankful. Turns out the guy's name was, I think it's is Anthony Holmes. Is that it? their last mm -hmm. name, Holmes? Yeah. yeah. Anthony has been on the History Channel talking about the Amityville Horror. He was friends with Ed and Lorraine Warren, and just a complete gentleman. His wife was super cool, and they actually gave their presentation Saturday night right before we gave our presentation to talk about our book. So that just kind of cool the way things worked out that way. That's synchronicity right there. Well, and, this, and you don't know who you're going to see because I don't know if you've ever watched Hellier with the Newkirks. Um, mm -hmm. It's a two-season um, thing that they did, a uh, show that they did. And there's a guy named Tyler Strand on there. And Tyler's like the hot guy of the show. I mean, all the females are like, oh, Tyler, you know. Bill says, do you see Tyler Strand just walk past? I'm like, no. <laughs> and I said, if Tyler walks past again, we were giving out buttons too for, you know, PRP, phenomenology research professionals. And I said, if Tyler walks past, I'm going to stop him and tell him he's going to want one of these buttons. Tyler walks past. I'm like, Tyler. <laughs> so I got a picture of Bill and Andy Colvin and Tyler Strand. And that was like the highlight for me. But then after he walked away, I'm like, I didn't get my picture with him. But so you don't know who you're going to meet there. There's like all kinds of uh, semi-celebrity type people. We were right across from us was um, Lyle Blackburn. And next to him was, who was next to him? Ken, Ken Gerhard. Ken Gerhard, yeah. And, and then, then Nick Redfern was right down the way too. Yeah. So you know. we, we visited with Did all you see Nick Redfern? Mother, his yeah. Yeah, Nick Redfern yeah. was there. Nick Redfern. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we know him. We've yeah, visited him several times. Yeah, to stand there talking to him. Kind of hard to understand with his um, accent, but... Scottish accent, yeah. Yeah, we figured it out, yeah. I, I'm he part Scottish, saying, so I, I get him I a little. I thought he's British. I thought he's British. He's yeah, Scottish. He is British. Is he? He's, he's I British. Think he's Scottish. He's mostly British, though, because I remember... He might be a mix of some things, but definitely British it's is there. British Isle. I just I mean, know he, he has an accent. <laughs> But it seems like oh, wasn't yes. he wearing he wore a stocking cap I think that said the Ramones and then he had a T-shirt of a different punk band but I can't remember who the other yeah. one was but he was yeah. fun to talk to no cowboy hat no no he didn't have the hat <laughs> or cryptozoologist think, hat or whatever it is I think only didn't only Lyle have the the black hat I don't think Ken was wearing his was no, he Ken had his hat too did he yeah yeah All I don't right, think he wore it the entire time but. 
Well, everybody, I got to close out. It's been a great show. Thank you so much. And the name of the book is uh, Bridging the Tragedy, Silver Linings in the Mysterious Ohio River Valley, A Psychological Study of Post-Traumatic Growth. you have any links you want to give out or anything? Go ahead, dear. Well, the book is available on Amazon for anybody that's interested. And if people don't have an Amazon account and they want one, on Facebook, we have a Facebook page, Phenomenology Research Professionals. You can contact us through that, and we will ship a book for 20 bucks. That's what they cost on Amazon. There's no shipping on that. And um, our email address, if they would prefer to contact us through that, is 2022PRP at gmail.com. Well, I appreciate it. It's been a great show. Thanks so much. And uh, keep us in the loop on any future endeavors for sure. We've enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks Good to see you again, Jeffrey. Thanks for having nice us. Jay, nice guys. to meet you. Great talking to you guys. And uh, it was great. yeah, Thanks I'm for usually you. a little more peppier. I've had some weird headache all day, like uh-huh. all day since I woke up this morning. It's like, will this damn thing go away? Like, it <laughs> sucks. Did ibuprofen, trying to coffee at some, see if it was a caffeine. <laughs> it went away a oh, little bit, still there. Best just, thing ah. ever is chocolate syrup and Pepsi. Sounds gross. <laughs> Seriously, oh, chocolate syrup in a glass with some ice, what put some co- uh, Pepsi. Get a big glass because it's going to foam up. Did you learn but, that from uh, Bigfoot? Big is, is that a Bigfoot secret? It works. I've never heard of that. It's, a, it's right. a huge boost of caffeine to your brain. It works. Yeah, I'll look into it, but maybe not. <laughs> Everybody have a good weekend. Thanks for listening. United Public Radio. You can go to churchofmavisradio.com. Everybody have a good weekend. Take care, everybody. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thank you.